0: Thessalonians chapter number two. First Thessalonians chapter number two. I want to say how much I appreciate brother Jim. What a blessing that is. I tell you, it's a blessing to me. He encourages me every time I see him. And I, and I love the spirit that he always has about him. It always bears witness with my spirit and reminds me what a sorry spirit I have most of the time about things. He's always an encouragement, and uh, I appreciate him. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2 tonight, and uh, we're going to be in three portions of Scripture, uh, but I want us to notice a phrase that is found in all three portions. We find it uh, the first time that we're going to notice this evening is in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Look with me in verse number 10. Now, uh, you know, Paul always began with uh, when he wrote an epistle with introductory material, and he was talking always about what God was doing where He was at, what God was doing that local church body, what God had done in His life through that church. And so it's very, very personal. And as He is giving testimony of this, He says in verse number 10, You are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Let's pray together. Lord, bless your word tonight. Uh, Exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you do a work in our hearts and, and souls and lives and minds and spirits this evening that would have eternal consequences, that would bear eternal fruit. We'll be sure to give you the praise for it. I pray especially for the requests that have been mentioned, Lord, as well. Uh, we know that you'll meet with them according to your will, and we trust your faithfulness. Bless our time together, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice what Paul says about the time that he spent at Thessalonica. And one of the things that he... and he uses the word charged. One of the things that he charged the church at Thessalonica... To do, And it's in verse number 12. He says that they comforted, they exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children that you would walk worthy of God. That is an astounding statement. When we think about the magnitude of both what he asked them to do, what he charged them to do, it, it even goes further than asking. He commanded. He said, you have a responsibility. But even think about the, the capacity, the possibility that we could say that we could walk worthy of God. Now, I think the first thing any and every one of us would say is, Preacher, I'm unworthy. Anybody have that feeling tonight? Boy, I tell you, it it just absolutely saturates. Every time that I'm honest with myself about myself, I am saturated with the acknowledgement and the sense that I am unworthy. Uh, There is absolutely nothing about me that's worthy of any of the things that the Lord has done in me and through me and for me. I, 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 and I hear that, and, and I'll be honest, it sort of, it grates against my senses. I think to myself, what a what an insurmountable command that Paul gave them, that they would walk worthy of God. And yet we find in the Pauline epistles on three different occasions, this same phrase, walk worthy, is used. It's used here in First Thessalonians. It's used again in the book of Colossians chapter 1, where it says we're to walk worthy of the Lord. And it's used in Ephesians chapter number 4, where it says we're to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. So in three places, I think we could say this, that if something's found in Scripture one time, that's enough to give it eternal precedent. It doesn't have to be mentioned three times. But when something is mentioned three times, I do believe that's God's way of sort of certifying it and saying, hey, pay attention to this truth and to this principle. And so I'd go ahead and I would freely confess to you that if Brother Toby was writing to the church at Thessalonica, my pen might tremble at that phrase, walk worthy. But Brother Paul, when the Holy Ghost had a hold of his pen, He pinned down boldly that you and I can and should walk worthy of God. Now, I think before we get into the message, let me just give you a short phrase for an introduction, just a simple statement that I think will clarify something about what we're being asked to do. None of us are worthy of our walk. None of us are worthy to walk. Let me say that again. None of us are worthy of our walk. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Of the fact that God would save us. Of the fact that God would use us. Of the fact that God would be patient with us. Of the fact that God would identify Himself with us. Ain't none of us worthy of our walk. And let me say, I'll go a step further, none of us are worthy to walk. There's not a single one of us that God saved us because He said, Hey, they've earned a spot in heaven. God's not picking out a baseball team, but even if He was, He probably wouldn't pick me or you. I was sitting around with a group of preachers last night uh, down at the Cracker Barrel. I don't know if you know this, but if you're looking for a missing preacher, the Cracker Barrel is a good place to find him. And uh, I was sitting around with a bunch of preachers, and, and we were talking about Calvinism. And, of course, Calvinism has infected, it's completely corrupted the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, just about head to toe. Albert Moeller, who was the, the president of the SBC a couple years ago, they booted him out and got this other guy, Greer, uh, from over in, in uh, South Carolina or North Carolina, wherever it is, one of the Carolinas. Uh, this guy just said, by the way, a couple months ago, that Christians need to be advocates for trans rights. You want to know why I'm an independent Baptist? i got a lot of reasons I'm an independent Baptist. I'm an independent Baptist because it's scriptural. But if you want to know uh, one of the reasons I'm proud to be an independent Baptist, because I don't want to identify with that mess right there. Uh, this idea of, of, of you know, we need to be an advocate for trans rights and all, all that nonsense. But uh, part of the reason they picked this Greer guy is because he's a Calvinist. I'm talking about bona fide, through and through, head to toe, Reformed covenant theology, replacement theology, Calvinist. He believes God's picking out a baseball team. And he's picked some of us to heaven. And uh, he's picked some of us to hell. And it's always funny. I've never met a Calvinist who had any kids who's uh, who want an elect. Isn't that interesting? Ain't none of them got a single kid or grandkid that ain't elect, that ain't part of the elect, that ain't on their way to heaven. Uh, so we were sitting around, we were talking about Calvinism, the effect it's got on churches, and I made this statement to the preachers. I, I said, let me tell you one of the reasons I know that Calvinism cannot be true. I said, I could give you a hundred theological reasons, but let me give you a practical observational reason. Because if God was going to pick somebody, He sure enough wouldn't pick us. Amen. I I mean, when I look around at at the people of God, me, I mean, more than anybody else, I see that God's chosen the the small things, the the things that are not, the foolish things this world, to confound the things that are wise. And and I, I just have a hard time. I think God's got more sense. If He was picking a baseball team, I think He'd have sense enough to not pick me or you. He'd probably pick somebody better than us. So I don't believe God's picking a baseball team. I don't believe God looked at us and said, boy, they're going to make a good Christian. I'll save them. Uh, I don't believe that's what God's doing in this world. None of us are worthy to walk. There ain't a one of us that God saved us because he said they're going to make a good Christian. He saved us by his grace and by his grace alone. Now, with that said, none of us are worthy of our walk. None of us are worthy to walk for the Lord. But every one of us can and should be worthy in our walk for the Lord. You say, what's the difference, preacher? None of us are worthy to be in this thing, but we can make sure that the way we're living is to the best of our ability fit for the God of glory. We can walk worthy of Him. Now, I want you to notice these three passages, and then we'll close. The passage we've read... Uh, in the opening of the message tonight in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, Paul simply says we are to walk worthy of God. And I, I pinned it down this way that I believe what he's saying is that we are as creatures, as part of God's creation, we are to walk worthy of our maker. The term God is the creator title of God. The first way that God was ever introduced to humanity was Uh, through the means of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that name Elohim, it's the, it's the plural singular. It means three in one. And it denotes the idea of, of a sort of generic title of God. And I hate to use that term generic, but what I mean is this. The God that we know is in existence because we look at the creation around us and we know it cannot come from primordial sludge. It couldn't have come from some sort of big bang. It couldn't have come from just miscellaneous cells sort of fusing or, or unfusing from each other. There's design behind it. A God had to design it. And that is the God that is revealed to us in the first three verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. and I don't think it's an accident that Paul, when he says this to the church at Thessalonica, that he uses that generic term for God. I don't think he's trying to minimize the personal relationship of God to his people. But I think he is trying to invoke in our minds that you and I, we have a responsibility for no other reason. I'm talking about even if we were lost as a ball in high weeds, just merely as part of God's creation... We have a responsibility to live in accordance with His Word, with His law, because He is our Creator. This denotes a Godward responsibility. We are to walk worthy of our Maker. The relationship is that of God as our Creator. But then think about the responsibility that that entails. Now, there are a lot of responsibilities that we have in this dispensation of grace that we live in. We walk in a lot of light. I I want you to understand that the dispensation of grace is the first dispensation to ever have a completed Bible. God give us all the light that mankind is going to be given. We've got a lot of light that we have a responsibility to walk in today. Uh, Everything from Genesis to Revelation, if it's rightly divided bears application to our life in some way, shape, fashion, or form. And it it it, uh, it it brings upon us, it thrusts upon us a responsibility to respond in obedience. But if we were to roll things back just a little bit, let's imagine that we go back Let's imagine that we're somebody born, we have no concept of God, uh, we're living somewhere out in the, in the middle of the wilderness, we're in the, the the African, uh, you know, wilderness, we're in, and somewhere in India living in the mountains, we have no interaction with Bible Christianity, but we look up to the heavens, we know there must be a God there, what are our responsibilities to Him? As, as His creation, I think there's three basic things. The first is to acknowledge Him. To acknowledge that there is a God that has created this world that presides over it. Now you say, well, preacher, what does that have to do with me? I mean, I don't just acknowledge God, I know God. But can I ask you this? Are you acknowledging Him day by day in your decisions? Uh, Solomon pinned down this way, In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. Here's the problem. A lot of us acknowledge Him as, as in existence. We even acknowledge His authority to some degree. But very few of us acknowledge His governance in our life on a day-to-day basis. And as His creation, we have a responsibility to walk with a consciousness of His existence and personal interest. In our lives, we ought to walk day by day thinking that God has an opinion knowing, I guess I should say, that God has an opinion about the decisions that we're making, the life that we're living. We ought to be walking day by day acknowledging him in everything that we do. We have a responsibility to acknowledge him. Number two, we have a responsibility to acquiesce to him. We have a responsibility to submit our will to his, to obey him. I don't want to get into a bunch of sort of existential discussions and philosophical, but there's a thing called natural law. And it's really a political ideal or it's a philosophical ideal that wove its way into a lot of Western politics and a lot of things that relate to, you know, that Jefferson wrote about natural law in the founding documents. But the idea was basically this, that even looking at nature we can recognize that God has in, endowed and imbued His creation with certain rights. This is where the founders got the idea of, of inalienable rights given from our Creator. Governor, the government is not meant to be there to grant us rights. Government does not have the ability to remove rights from us. It can oppress the rights we have, but it cannot take the rights that we have from us. They're not given from government, they're given from God. And government's basic role is there to protect those rights and to stay out of the way of the people in as much as they seek to live and exercise those rights. But the idea that Jefferson and some of the other founders had is that these, these rights were part of a natural law written upon God's creation. The idea being that, that God had given us free will and sentience and, and a desire and a longing for freedom and for liberty and for the ability to, well, I just say it this way, for the ability to be left alone. You say, preacher, what kind of government do you want? The kind that leaves me alone. Amen? That's the kind I want. I want the kind that I never have to interact with, that just leaves me alone, uh, that is going to do nothing but just protect what rights God has already given me. But aside from that, is going to stay out of my way as much as is possible. So this natural law is written upon all of creation. And there's no question, uh, you know, Paul said this in the book of Romans, that even Gentiles who do not have the law, their conscience is a law unto themselves. And so even those that have no interaction with the light of God's revelation have within them an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Go across every civilization that has ever existed and you'll find that there are certain things that have always been frowned upon, that have always been looked at as immoral, as lesser, as undesirable. Uh, anywhere that you go, stealing and murder and, and lying and things like this, that of course God enshrined in the in the Ten Commandments, but these things were wrong before God ever sent Moses down off the mountain with tablets in his hands. These things uh, they 're woven into the fabric of god 's holiness of his character of his person, of who he is. And I, I don't believe that mankind has any sort of, uh, like the Amish claim, an inner light that he just merely has to embrace and worship and that that will lead him to God. But I do believe this, that just as the law could not justify a man, but it could condemn a man, conscience too cannot save a man, but it can condemn a man. It can bear witness to the fact that we in our fallen sinful condition cannot live up to God's standard of righteousness. And inasmuch as this law resides within our soul, in our, in our mind, we have responsibility to acquiesce to it, to obey it as God's creation. Now you'd say, preacher, what does that have to do with me? Well, let me ask you this. Are you walking in obedience to the Lord? Or are you living in disobedience? Now we're going to get into some deeper things here in a minute, but are you walking in obedience? Are you acquiescing to Him? Then I wrote down a third thing, to adore Him. To adore Him. There's a reason that in so many places in, in the world where they uh, reject any kind of concept of a personal creator God, they've taken to worshiping constellations, the sun, the stars, the moon. Uh, there's places where they worship the rivers and the mountains and things like that. Why is it that they do that? Why is it agnosticism and atheism is a phenomenon of Western civilization? You don't find agnosticism and atheism in old civilization. Over in the East, it's a a uniquely Western concept and construct. Why is that? Because it took man's creation of secular humanism to drive from his conscience the concept of God. And that's why in places where they have no concept of God, they they grope and seek and strive to worship something. Why is that? Because God created man. He is our creator. We as his creation, he has created us to adore him, to praise him, to worship him, to love him. And when we do not have any concept of him, we seek something to fill that vacuum. Can I ask you this? Are you walking worthy of God by adoring him, by loving him, by giving your heart to him? So I see in this passage the relationship. God, He's our Creator and our responsibility to acknowledge, acquiesce, adore Him. But then I see the reason. Look what Paul says, verse number 12, that we that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto His kingdom and glory. I, I jotted it down this way. We have two reasons. I'm talking about in in the dynamic of He's our Creator, we are His creation. Two reasons that we have a responsibility to walk worthy of Him. One is simply because He created us. If God never did anything other than create us, the life that we have has been given from Him, and we have a responsibility to give that life back to Him. Something that you'll find, I've got to be careful, man, I'll have us here till 10 o'clock, but if you study the Old Testament uh, sacrifices and dietary laws and stuff, prior to the flood, listen carefully, prior to the flood, mankind did not eat meat. They ate only the herb of the field. God told Adam that every herb of the field would be his meat. The idea being this, now there were animals killed prior to that because you remember that Abel slayed uh, a sacrifice and brought it to the Lord. You remember God himself slayed a sacrifice in the Garden of Eden. But mankind was not to consume those things. It tells a lot about what Abel invested his time and life in. He was a shepherd. Well, why was he raising sheep? He was raising them for sacrifice. But the, the the concept was this, that life, meaning not just life in the sense of organic life like plant life, but life in the sense of something that has sentience, was in the jurisdiction of God. It belonged to Him. It wasn't until after the flood that God permitted man to begin to consume meat and kill animals. And even then God was very careful to remind him, don't eat the blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And that's mine. The idea behind that being that Life is God's domain. It's His prerogative. It belongs to Him. It's one of the great reasons that suicide is such a, a horrific and harmful and dastardly thing. And I know there's people, maybe that's a hard word. I've had people that I love dearly that have chosen, unfortunately, that sad path. But it is, it is a sin against God. Doesn't mean it's going to send you to hell. Amen. But it is a sin against God. You know why? Because it's not your place to decide when to take your life. It's God's place to decide that. And this all ties in with a lot of stuff about what we believe about unborn children too. But uh, I don't have six hours to preach to you. Suffice it to say, He is your Creator. So your life, it belongs to Him. And to Him alone. He created you. So if for no other reason... And simply because the life that you've got, He gave you, it's His life. It belongs to Him. And as His creation, you ought to give it back to Him. But let me give you a second reason. Because He called us. He called us to what? To His kingdom. Now, remember, we're not talking about the kingdom of heaven here. Because it's not talking about Christ here specifically. He says you walk worthy of God. So whose kingdom? It's God's kingdom. And the kingdom of God does not refer to the kingdom of heaven. Those are two separate things. The kingdom of heaven is a, a literal, visible kingdom. In fact, the parables in Matthew 13 make it plain that the kingdom of heaven, when it resides on earth, there's going to be uh, tares that are sown in amongst the wheat. It, it, it's not a, a spiritual condition. It's a literal kingdom. But the kingdom of God is a spiritual entity. Christ said this to His disciples, that the kingdom of God comes not with signs, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is any and everything over which God bears effectual governance. And it refers distinctly to believers that have given Him their life i tell you why we owe God our everything, why we ought to walk worthy of Him as our Creator, because our Creator loved us enough that He didn't just create us, push us off out into space and turn His back on us and walk away from us. He came to redeem His creation when His creation fell, when His creation sinned, when His creation made the wrong decision, when His creation corrupted Himself. He became a part of His creation that He might die in the place of His fallen creature. That He might redeem His creation unto Himself because He... He called us to salvation. Number two, he called us to glorification. Reconcile us unto his kingdom and to glory. God had a plan for his creation. And, uh, none of this surprised God. None of it, none of it wrecked his plans. But of course, God's intent and desire was always that mankind live in glorious, uh, fellowship with him. And we lost something. Mankind lost something in Adam when Adam ate of the fruit and he sinned. Man's state and status was, was degraded. And his spirit and soul was depraved and his nature was corrupted. But in Jesus Christ, that which we've lost in Adam, we get back in Jesus Christ. And more than that, death came by Adam, but life and light come by Jesus Christ through his resurrection. I'll tell you why you ought to walk worthy of him. Because as our creator, he saved us. But not only that, he seeks to glorify us. And he seeks to leave us in a condition. When time begins to cease, when, when the final... Sand drops out of the hourglass when the second hand quits to move. And when we enter into that state of timeless bliss, us believers will be in a state of glorified condition. We ought to walk worthy of them. Turn over to Colossians chapter number 1. got to hurry. Colossians chapter number 1. I don't know why as preachers say that. We don't really plan on it, but maybe we think it makes you feel better. I don't know. Maybe it makes us feel better. Colossians chapter number 1. Look with me at verse number 9. Paul, again, in this introductory material, writing about uh, the church at Colossae and, and about his prayer life for them, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, Unto all patience and long suffering, with joyfulness. So, if in First Thessalonians, Paul is reminding us that we need to walk worthy of our Maker, and it's a God word calling and command. I believe in Colossians chapter number one, he's reminding us that we need to walk worthy of our Master, and it's a Christ word command. In other words, not just God in the generic sense of our Creator, but more specifically His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to live and walk in a way that's worthy of Him. The dynamic is that of a master and a servant in this passage. And I wrote down five things that I believe define how we are to live for Jesus Christ. First, he says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Think with me for a moment about the servant's priority. He's saying your priority as you walk worthy of the Lord in your life ought to be to be living in a way that's unto Him Pleasing. A servant has one priority in life, and that is to please his master. He may not make anyone else happy, and at the end of the day, his calling is not to quarrel with other servants. His calling is not to offend guests of his master. But at the end of the day, if he's done one thing and one thing alone, please his master, then he's done admirably his job. It ought to be our goal in life, if nothing else. Then we ought to want to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus. Man, I do. I want to, I want to please Him. I, I just want Him to be happy with my life. I, I'm learning more and more, and I got a long way to go in this learning thing, but I'm learning more and more that if I can just make Him happy, that's what success is. If I can just please Him in the way I live, in the way I behave, in the way I act, in the way I raise my family, in the way I pastor our church, in the way that I shepherd our people, if I can just make Him happy, then I'm content. That ought to be our priority in life, just to please Him in all things. Look at the next phrase. He says, being fruitful in every good work. He mentions the servant's productivity. A servant ain't a good servant unless he's getting something done. You know, part of our problem, there's a lot of us as servants, they ain't serving. We're there, we've been called to it, we're in the place of service, but we're not actively serving. And I think there is such a propensity to side with with, with Mary in that interaction there in the little home in Bethany, when Martha's running around and, and, you know, busy and working and laboring, and, and Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha comes in and sort of scolds the Lord Jesus and says, won't you tell my sister to get up and help me with all this? And the Lord says, listen, Martha, Martha, they aren't cumbered about with much care, but Mary, she's chosen the better part, and the good part. Listen, I agree that Mary had chosen the better part, but can I just give a little props to Martha for a second and say that the problem is it, it, it ain't the problem is not that we're Mary at his feet or we're Martha in the kitchen we're Myrtle somewhere laying in bed not doing nothing It's easy to be rough on old Martha and it's better to be Mary but you don't want to be Myrtle laying in bed doing nothing and there's something to be said for being productive for serving for being active Paul said, I'm praying you're fruitful in every good work. Look at the next phrase. He says, increasing in the knowledge of God. He speaks of the servant's perceptiveness. He says, a servant has one goal, intellectually speaking, academically speaking. A servant doesn't need PhDs. A servant doesn't need to have a a bunch of education. A servant doesn't need to have a mind filled with trivia. A servant has one intellectual need in his life, and that's to know his master. To know his master. The servant's only job is to know what his master needs, what his master does not need, does not like, is gonna ask for, ain't gonna ask for. I was impressed with Jim up here, man. I- I'm gonna have him tested. He was, he was mind reading some of you people. Before you even raised your hand, Jim knew you had a prayer request. And I'm gonna try to get him teaching me how to do it. We can make money, man, doing that. And uh, we'll start a card game or something. I don't know, but that's, that was impressive to me. And, uh, listen we ought to and i do say this in in seriousness you know what you know why he knew not because he could read their mind because he was watching their faces he he noticed when they when they opened their mouth with that little pause when they when their eyes grew attentive when they shifted a little bit he was paying careful close attention to their demeanor and because of that he could just sort of guess you know that's how we ought to be with the lord well, to have our eyes ever fixed upon Him. The psalmist said that's how we're to be, like the servant whose eyes are always on his master. Our focus ought to be, Lord, what do you want of me? And the way that we learn that is by learning Him. Look at verse number 11. He says, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. We see the servant's power. The servant's power is not his own. The servant's power is the master's power. The servant only has authority because his master has authority. The servant only has resources because his master has resources. The servant only has liberty because his master grants him liberty. The servant in and of himself has none of these things, so he doesn't rely on any of these things. He's relying solely and only upon his master's strength. Listen, we'll get a lot more done. We'll walk worthy of the Lord uh, a lot more often if we'll start resting in His strength and not in our own strength. And then look at the last phrase in verse 11. He says, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. We see the servant's patience. The servant's patience. A servant can serve for many, many long hours and never reap the reward or praise that he feels like is necessary, but he is still called to patiently with long sufferingness and joyfulness serve, knowing that his master will not leave him without reward and without recognition for what he's done. Can I just say this very simply, and we're gonna move over to Ephesians 4, you can find your place there. But can I just simply say this, that it's, it's a great feat to have patience. It's a greater feat to have long-sufferingness. But if you can do both those things with joyfulness, you're in deep water now. You're, you're, I mean, you're really in a spiritual depth at that point. And the problem with a lot of us is we think if we can just get patience under wrap, that that's enough. But it takes patience, it takes long-sufferingness, it takes joyfulness. Uh, Patience is waiting. Long-sufferingness has to do with bearing up under your circumstances even when they're not pleasant. But joyfulness has to do with relying and reclining upon the providence of God in your situation and taking joy by faith knowing that God has a reason, a grand glorious design and purpose for what you're going through. Paul uses this phrase walk worthy one more time in Ephesians chapter four, and I'm not going to dwell long on this, but I do want to mention it before we close. Look with me at the first three verses. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In first Thessalonians, Paul charges us To walk worthy of our Maker, our Creator. And this is a Godward command. We are to walk worthy of God. In Colossians chapter 1, He commands us to walk worthy of our Master. And this is a Christward command. This is how we are to walk in light of what Christ has done for us. But in Ephesians 4, we're commanded to walk worthy of our ministry. And it's a manward command. In other words, this relates to our responsibility to one another. And let me say, we do have a responsibility to one another. Man, one of the great problems I sense in churches today, and and I, I like to believe and I trust it to be true that it's probably not true of a Wednesday night crowd, but I wouldn't say that our church is untouched by this phenomenon. I think it's universal. But one of the great problems in churches today is a lack of commitment and a lack of a sense of community with the people that are a part of a church together. We have grown to view church in a consumer mentality, and we view the church that we go to the same way that we view the restaurant that we pick or the place where we choose to go to get our coffee. It's just where we go to get a service provided for us instead of a family that we're a part of, that we're accountable one to another. I was thinking about this as Brother Jim was talking about the new mover visitation ministry. In fact, I almost said something about it. Well, this new mover thing, there's a finite amount of visits. You know what that means? That means the more folks involved, the less work there is on everybody else. That means it, it makes a, a meaningful difference if you step up and if you say, all right, I'll do it, I'll be committed because, yes, I have a responsibility to the Lord and I have a responsibility to the lost, but I also have a responsibility to the other brethren in the church. I don't want to let them down either. I need to be involved, I need to be invested, I need to be connected, I need to be committed to what God is doing in this place. And I think we've lost a lot of sense of that just as a, as a society. A lot of that, again, has to do with secular humanism gripping and replacing people's sense of community with a sense of class instead of people identifying with one another for other reasons. They just, everything's about what race they are, what class they are, what income bracket they're in. It's a wicked, vile concept. Uh, and a lot of that even lays at the feet of the church for laying down on the job for many decades now. But I believe there's a responsibility we have one to another. What is that responsibility? Three things very quickly. Paul mentions our disposition towards each other. He says, with all lowliness and meekness. You and I have a responsibility to treat those around us better than ourselves. We have a responsibility to not prefer ourselves above them, but to prefer them above ourselves. I would would venture and dare to say that this is becoming a lost practice in the way we interact with each other. We we society conditions us to this dog eat dog environment and this idea of I got to look out for me and mine. But listen, I, and you say, well, that's culture. Yeah, that is culture. But I'm not talking about what's cultural. I'm talking about what's spiritual. What's spiritual is in lowliness and meekness, as Paul says elsewhere in the Book of Ephesians, to prefer one another in love. Our disposition ought not be pride. It ought not not be cutthroat. It ought not be climbing on top of each other, trying to use each other as stepping stones. But our attitude towards each other ought to be lowliness and meekness. Lowliness has to do with humility. Meekness has to do with strength under spiritual control. Not always looking to prove yourself to everybody, but always looking to prefer one another above yourselves. Then he mentions our dedication to each other, forbearing one another in love. Let me give you a good I don't know if you know this, but the Greek definition of forbearing is putting up with. (laughs) Maybe that's the Toby Weber definition. Forbearing, putting up with one another, that's what it means. It means to hold something up, to undergird it, to support it so it doesn't fall. And that's what Paul says, that ought to be what we're striving to do for each other. Holding each other up, pulling each other up, encouraging one another. We ought to be so dedicated to each other that we're willing to stand there and be the foundation for another person's crumbling life, if that's what's necessary. And then finally, notice, and I'm done, our desire for each other. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What I find interesting here, he doesn't say endeavoring to create the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't say endeavoring to cultivate the unity of the Spirit. He says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That tells me this. Every one of us born again have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And the Spirit of God never disagrees with the Spirit of God. He ain't like me. People say all the time, well, do you, do you agree with everything so-and-so says? And I always tell folks I don't agree with everything I say. <laughs> I'll go back and listen to a sermon and say, man, I should have said that different. <laughs> but the Spirit of God never does that. The Spirit of God is always in perfect, cohesive agreement because He is the spirit of truth. And as such, all we have to do, listen, He gives us a baseline of of, of commonality, a baseline of fellowship. He bears witness with my spirit, with your spirit, and all we have to do is let Him lead the way. And if we'll let Him lead the way, we'll find that 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 unity, that bond of peace is present there. We don't have to cultivate it, friend, we just have to keep it. How do we do that, preacher? By getting ourselves out of the way. Because every time something disrupts that unity, that bond of peace, it's because somebody allowed their flesh, themselves, to get in the middle of it and to disrupt the, the, the peace and the bond. That the Spirit of God, uh, organically, if we can say it that way, spiritually, uh, naturally, however you want to describe it, produces in believers by virtue of the fact that He seeks to govern and guide their life. You see, if you'll follow the Spirit of God, And if I'll follow the Spirit of God, we'll find that we'll be going in the same direction. We have a responsibility to God as our Creator, to Christ, to God as our Maker, let me say it that way, to Christ as our Master, and to one another in our ministry to walk worthy of each other. You better think about how you walk. I I need to think about that. We better think about how we walk because how we walk is going to dictate how we interact with each other. And one day it's going to dictate how we stand before the Lord, whether we stand before Him as a good and faithful servant or as a disobedient one, whether we reap rewards or whether we miss out on some things that God had for us because we lived in disobedience.